Hello and welcome to this, the 50th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Ingus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised we won't ever charge for this podcast, but we are looking for you to put your money where your mouth is and put your money into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And as we always say, the simplest way for you to go and do that is just to go and buy yourself some theatre tickets. It's the most straightforward, direct, simple approach, and you also get a great night out at the theatre, out of the bargain, so it's not a bad deal. But of course there are ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Do please go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person, over a pint or a cup of coffee, or by sharing the link on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever other platform you may be using, help get the word out about this podcast. And that in turn helps us get the word out about these great theatre artists that we're having these conversations with. Uh, Do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes, though all episodes are streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie. Go back and listen to the other episodes, both in this second series and indeed in the original series from a few years back. There's 52 crackers there as well. Leave us a review on iTunes if you would, please. I know we're coming to the end of this season of 52 episodes, this is the big episode 50 so if you've been telling yourself all along god i must do that one of the days or jesus should really get around to that maybe make today that day it's a huge help to us it's a massive benefit in terms of search algorithms and all that other great stuff do please go and leave us a review over on itunes or you can simply click to rate us on their five star rating system you can follow us on facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions ireland or you can follow us on twitter we are at rise Ireland. And it's been another busy week at Rise Towers. We are cooking up plans, ladies and gentlemen. We are getting next year in motion. We have some international touring planned. So we're cracking away and stuff like that at the moment. And it's all coming together very nicely. It's all going to be very intriguing. I will reveal all in due course when I can. Um, but exciting times coming up for Rise Productions and that makes me very happy. Also just been kind of busy knocking around doing my little own freelance stuff as an actor because that still exists as well. Apart from keeping all the plates spinning here at Rise. Um, the old career as the actor are still ticking over nicely which is no harm because i gotta put those kids through college and the bank manager wants the money every month so look that brings us to our guest this week and when it's a big event like episode 50 we gotta go with a big guest and they don't really come any more impressive than gary hines uh, an absolute trailblazer a leader and a visionary and a great artist and someone I'm such a massive fan of. Someone I've never had the opportunity to work with yet, remarkably, but just someone I've been so uh, amazed by and thrilled by and excited by in terms of her productions over the years. Um, you know, some just some classic, incredible moments in the theatre, thanks to the great folks at Druid. So, look, let's get straight into it. Here she is, the brilliant Gary Hines. <laughs> The wonderful Gary Hines joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm That's delighted tough. to have you. Um, as we do every week, let's go back to the very beginning. What yeah. for you are your earliest memories of any kind of an interest in theatre? Um, they come from when I was in national school in the Louis Convent in Monaghan and I was in fifth class. That was the class before sixth class before the primary cert. And somehow or other I got it into my head that I wanted to do a play. 
and somewhere or other I found a, a Frenchish play for for children and it was set in a classroom as far as I remember I can't remember the title and my teacher uh, at the time was a woman a great woman called Sister, jo- Sister Mary Josephine um, a Louis sister and she was delighted and incredibly encouraging and um, uh, so proud of it that I went on my first tour so in the afternoons we went round to the other classes in the school and, <laughs> and produced the play and they uh, glorious thing about that is that I still talk to her and still in touch with her really and uh, she's uh, I don't know if she's at 98 or 90, she's 99 and in flying form and it's oh, fantastic, fantastic to have that kind of a relationship now even at that early stage were you in director mode or were you performing at that stage I was in director mode actually <laughs> I love it no it's funny <laughs> because uh, in addition to that I met um, a school friend of mine um, for the first time literally since we left school wow. when we were 10 or 11 um, and uh, she got in touch with me and she told me that she remembers that it was very strange that I did a play and didn't act mm. in it myself so I didn't even kind of I wasn't even aware of that but she was aware of it at the time Was it ever on your horizon the performance element of it or was it always a bigger interest in directing? No it never. It wasn't even that it was a bigger interest in directing it was more that the idea of actually going out and pretending to be somebody else in front of a small bunch of people or a big bunch of people filled me with absolute dread and still does really? I mean when we started Druid in the very beginning we were rehearsing late at night I played one or two small parts in the plays that we did first and uh, I remember you know waiting for somebody to come on and shouting who's somebody to come on and somebody like Marie shouting back it's you (laughs) (laughs) so no I've never I've never wanted to perform it's interesting do you you think that shapes at all how you work with actors now though in terms of or, or does it shape your opinion of actors maybe well, it does certainly shape my opinion of actors in that um, I do have an incredible respect for the for the fact that eventually they are have they have to go on. Mm. So that whatever conversation occurs in the rehearsal room with designers, directors about the meaning of a play or this or that or the other, the person who has to carry the can is the actor, and I can sit there and chew my nails and scribble my notes and everything but I'm not in front of the audience so yeah yeah, it does it does very much sort of I'm very aware of that so take me back to those early days of Druid even maybe possibly before I watched an old interview with you recently which talked about you joining Dramsock in first year yeah and become an auditor by second year, which is no mean feat. Well, it wasn't that I saw that clip myself. It wasn't that unusual, really. Um, and as I explained at the time, there was there was kind of an old guard when I went in in first year, and uh, then they all sort of graduated, so they the kind of generation yeah. stepped down. So yeah, he was Dramsock. Basically, I joined Dramsock. I joined every society in college. I was dying to go to college, and. Uh, I joined every society, but it was Drama Sock that had me hooked from, yeah. from the beginning. And I basically spent three years in, four years in college actually, after doing a H-dip, for which I ne- never sat the exams. Um, I, I spent four years doing plays, and as they say, as we call it. And what was the vibe like at that time? What was the scene like? Was there an atmosphere? Uh, of an excitement around it at the time. It feels kind of, I don't know if it's all rose tinted glasses looking back, but it feels 
from my perspective from the outside that it feels like there was a lot of energy knocking around at the time no I mean I think I don't particularly remember that there was I just remember that's what I did in college mm. um, and you know there was a certain number of coincidences for instance I um, I spent three years doing my leaving cert because I didn't manage to get the two honours that was necessary to matriculate right. uh, and I had to go back and repeat subjects um, so I went into college a year later than I should do but that was the same year that Marie Mullen okay. went into college. So I, looking back now, you can see all these coincidences. Um, but no, we were, we were just very caught up in, 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 um, in, in doing plays. And then we were encouraged, which is probably very kind of uh, telling in a way. We were encouraged to go out on the amateur drama circuit. Really? Um, a man called Paddy McGovern who was one of the powers that be and who lives near me now uh, encouraged us with the first play we did which was The Loves of Cass Maguire to do I think we went to Tubber Curry Drama Festival and so we went on the amateur circuit the right. competitive amateur circuit for the four years that I was in college and I think that put me in touch with something which I only came to understand later on in Druid Right, okay. And was that just about kind of amassing flying hours, just being out there in front of audiences and getting getting the guys... Uh, or, was it, or was it that the work was of a standard that they felt it could travel? Uh, I suppose they, they probably thought it, it could travel. Um, but also, I think in the first instance, um, I know that in Tabakari that some group pulled out at the very last minute. Right. And I think somebody said something about... Oh, um, those kids up in the college, they might be able to come with short notice. Right. And I think that's why we were asked. Fantastic. So talk to me then about the early days of Druid as Druid. Did it, did it kind of grow organically out of that college time? Yes, it did. Um, essentially, um, Marie and myself were coming to the end of our time at college. and We knew we wanted to go on um, making plays. There was no question of the professional theatre was completely remote um, and not just which, geographically was that even just as a as, a as an idea yeah, as a okay. concept it was very remote and um, we said and in any case I mean I think there was a special energy all right about Galway at the time were beginning to happen mm. so we said we're going to to we want to go on making plays um, and we want to do it here in Galway and here in the west of Ireland and we decided that we would try and bring this man called Mick Lally, whom we knew from the hostelries of, of Galway, <laughs> and who was actually, um, he was a teacher in the uh, vocational school in Tum. No, was it Tum? I can't remember. And uh, Mick was a big actor in the Tyviark, and he said he was going to work in England on the sites, but he'd think about it, and he came around the following day and said, yeah, sure, he'll chance it. Wow. So then we did that season for the summer and then we, we decided we'd stay with it and uh, Mick had to give in his notice as a teacher. and the person Which is not nothing. Which is not nothing. And the person he had to give his notice into was my father, who was the, <laughs> who was the CEO of, of the VEC in Galway. And Country there was Galway. you ruining the future for a good man. Absolutely. And I think um, <laughs> my father had a lot of time for Mick and I think he said, Mick, do you know on earth what you're doing? Yeah. And uh, makes it. I think I don't. I think it worked out all right. All things considered, <laughs> I think well. it worked out okay. Um, how special a talent was Mick? 
I was very special. She was very special as a person. I was hugely influenced uh, by him. Um, he was that few years older. He was incredibly sound. I had, as well as you know, having a, a love for him, uh, I had huge respect for him. Right. And in those early years, if Mick didn't think something was a good idea, then I tended to heed that. A good barometer. Um, he was a good barometer, and uh, he had a very, um, he had a very sort of particular he didn't mince his words he had a particular right. way of saying things and he you know he'd say i'd say maybe we should do this and he'd say no why in the name of god would you do that why don't do this so he was he was very important yeah and in terms of the huge tv exposure particularly through the 80s and stuff with, mm. with the glen Road being as mm. I, mean, I think people nowadays in you know when you've hundreds of channels the significance yeah. of you know what they refer to now as water cooler moments yeah. i think people it can be hard to grasp the nature of Ireland back at that time and yeah. how uh, just how huge a phenomenon that show was. Did that, was that a useful thing? Was it a, a tricky thing? Did it impact? It was useful because he actually left Rude very early. Right. He left in nineteen ninety seven to nineteen. What am I talking about? Seventy seven to come to Dublin. Um, I worked with Louis Lenton and RT and. But he kept coming back. Right. So while he was not a full-time or long-term member, he kept coming back uh, to do plays. And obviously, he helped us sell plays, yeah. um, um, particularly in, in the areas we want to go to, like Clifton and our circuit at the time of the halls of, of Ireland. Um, but I do remember clearly as well that we were sort of unaware of it. I remember meeting him in Bewley's Grafton Street for coffee one time. We were sitting down and chatting. And as we walked out, he suddenly put on a pair of sunglasses and a beret. And I remember and he had his bike over across the road while I locked in. What on earth is he doing? And then I just realised, oh yeah, of course. He's, he's doing all that. Yeah. It's mildly, yeah. you know, wow. to, to disguise himself. Yeah. The decision to stay out west and to keep that as the focus, what was the driving force behind that? I think it was um, it was a real love of the West, um, which then got sort of developed through f- we feeling that we were finding our voice through writers of the West, like Singh, um, Lady Gregory. I mean, in a way, the same sort of theoretical thinking that the real culture of Ireland was in the west of Ireland as opposed to the Anglo-Irish culture of Dublin. I think in some way that went round again and animated us in in a different way. And I think we very strongly um, did not want to do anything. We, we did sort of, did, we wouldn't have known the word uh, or words, vision or mission statement or anything like that. But we, sure. in retrospect, we did have a vision and we wanted to work that was unique. If somebody else was doing it somewhere, then we automatically would not do it. And that led to all sorts of absences as well, because everybody used to say, well, why don't you do John B. Keane? I mean, your culture is his culture. So <laughs> that's exactly why we're not doing it. So we, I, I didn't discover the glory of Keane until, oh, 15, 20 wow. years later. My first production, my first Keane production was actually in the Abbey or for the wow. Abbey. Yeah. That's remarkable. Do you feel that even the, the geography, that thing of being removed from the capital city, 
Did it shape the aesthetic of Babe? I mean, apart from just shaping the choice of plays, do you feel it, cha- it shaped the aesthetic as well, maybe? It did, but the, another thing that shaped the aesthetic really was the fact that I worked in, in New York uh, all during my college. I went off in June and didn't come back till October. And I started to go to plays off-off-Broadway there. Right. And so I came upon the concept that theatre is not the abbey or the gate. Uh, theatre actually can make, be made in small rooms by people who look in and around the same age as me and sound like me, even if they are American. Yeah. And so it was that idea combined with the other things I've been talking about that sort of then combusted, if you like, to become Druid. Were there moments in those early days where you went, yeah, we're getting this, or we're onto something, or we're chasing the right thing, or were there kind of big successes where you're going, okay, this is, this is happening? Uh, no, I, I think there were more moments in those early days that, you know, uh, this is not going to last. Really? Uh, yeah. I remember uh, we were doing a play called, uh, completely unknown play now, called uh, Mother Adam by Charles Dyer. And both, Mick was playing the son of an old woman. There was only two people in the play, which is one of the reasons we were doing it. <laughs> and, uh, Tell me about it. <laughs> Marie, Marie was an, an elderly woman and she aged herself up. Was How cruel was this? She aged herself up by wearing um, sticky tape, sellotape, all down her face. And can you imagine her face like when she peeled it off every uh-huh. night? But anyhow, I went and I did the, they did a director's course in the Abbey. And uh, I went on it for a week and came back to be met by Marie at the station to say that Mick had had a hernia and was in hospital. And the show had to shut down. So I think I remember thinking over that Christmas, that's possibly the end of it. That but it really wasn't. Wow. He came back, we opened it again, got through another set of crises. And so the first four years really were, I think probably we took root in 1979 when we, uh, we were doing uh, lunchtime plays in the, what was locally known as, as the Faux Castle at the back of a hotel in Dominic Street. And we went to the uh, owner there and we said, can we take it over on a permanent year-long lease? So now we had our own space, seated 46 people. Suddenly we could do long runs Mm. and we weren't paying per night. We weren't doing the kind of amateur thing of renting the hall of 300 people. I think that's where it it took root. what was the significance of that? Was it that you had, that you felt that you then had a permanent place, like there were a landmark or a bedrock on which to build? Or is it about the, just the luxury of having that space year-round, being able to... I think the luxury of having the space year-round, be able to rehearse and make yeah. plays in the same space, uh, being running for longer so that um, you weren't on on Friday and Saturday and then gone. Yeah. Uh, like I remember the first play we did was an American play by called Tom Payne and that sold out and ran for three weeks um, all of those kind of, it gave us a, an identity in Galway as well you know it, you went down an alley down the side of the building to it and we would we would come in some mornings and open the the door in the the in the gate and we would find piles of clothes people emptying their wardrobes and said they thought this might come in handy. Wow. So we started to build a kind of an, an identity. Um, and I think people knew what Druid was. They weren't sure exactly what, what it was, but they knew it meant something. And then we went to Edinburgh. We started to professionalise, if you like. We went to Edinburgh. We won Fringe First in the early 80s. And then we made the relationship with Tom Murphy. 
uh, around about that same time as well. And so, you know, I suppose 10 years in, we were reasonably well established. You've mentioned Tom, so we have to talk about him. Just yeah. one of the most truly gifted playwrights any country could ever be blessed enough to have. Yeah. What for you was the magic of Tom's work? Um, there was an, an enormous amount of things. Um, first of all, I absolutely love the work. I mean, it literally kind of, I literally found it inspirational. Mm. And then I met the man himself and, and um, utterly charismatic, extraordinary man. Then in the rehearsal room, he, I mean, I've often said that I think Druid really did, did actually properly professionalise through Tom's agency. Um, the, there was a discipline and a focus and a connection with the world we were living in, in doing Tom's work that you know taught us all so many so many lessons i mean fidelity to the text for one the fact that um that what you're doing should mean something to you that you know like he he taught me i think about truth and about that awfully overused word nowadays authenticity um passion and also about having to negotiate as well to, to, to exist because he was a, a formidable person yeah. to, to come up against. You talk about fidelity to the text. I remember being in a rehearsal room with him and him saying the line, it's not that the text is sacrosanct, but it is a bit. And, yeah. and, and, and I think you can roll with that on the basis that you know how hard he has worked on it. That, that the idea of a playwright, that this is wrought, that there is rigour gone into the creation of this, and that it's, there's nothing casual in there. That yeah. the dash is a dash, the comma is a comma, and the three dots are the three dots, and never the twain shall meet. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And yet, at the same time, I remember him, it was his usual sort of dry sense of humour. One of the actors asked him, what does that line, Tom, mean, mean Tom? And he said, I don't know, I only wrote it. Which, you know, that was again, that was the breadth of his, his vision. Yeah. And we, you know, it was a joke, but it was a truth as well. The musicality to his work, apart from the actual music featured so heavily in so much of the work, but the kind of the almost that it, as a script for an actor, kind of feels more like a score than a traditional script and that it is structured yeah. in that way. For you as director, is that interesting for you to get in and tackle with and, and kind of explore with actors? Absolutely. I mean, it's. it's 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 wonderful because um, it is like reading a score, mm. and it is like you just you just ferret at it. You just you just keep at it, and the more faithful you are to it, the more it will yield in its meaning and its pleasure. Do you find it? I mean, this is always a crazy or a dangerous uh, comparison to go with. But having worked so much on the Shakespeare recently. Mm-hmm. That that concept of fidelity to the text as well, trust in, in what's there, and it, even even in the tricky bits, if you trust fully, it will reveal itself. Yes, to you. is there a similarity there? Uh, very much similarity there. Although it was so long afterwards, I mean, Druid did do a Shakespeare play, mid, uh, not Midsummer's Night Dream, but uh, God, I forget it now. We we did it in 1982. Mm. We actually opened the uh, theatre in Sligo with it, but we were kind of. I was, I was terrified of Shakespeare until really the coming together of the existing ensemble when, and, and we did Druid Shakespeare then and um, definitely the, all the years of, of working with Tom and doing Tom's plays, I just, 
you know, it was just felt like, you know, uh, this is about a man who is almost inventing the English language as he writes. Yeah. And that's just such a thrill to be working on. I'd love to talk to you about some of those big epic productions from the Sing cycle through to even Drude Murphy and then with the Shakespeare. Tell me a bit about the impulse to try and paint on a canvas that large. Even just, mm. Is there an element of even madness to try it at all in the first place? Well, I think probably there is an element of madness, but it was, um, again, it was, it was a continuing search to do something that's not been done elsewhere. And we made a rather big decision in the early 90s. Everybody expected when the, the um, city council were uh, taking over the town hall cinema and turning it into a theatre, everybody presumed that Druid would be the resident theatre there. And internally and externally, we spent years talking about it. And eventually made a decision, no, because within a few years we felt we'd simply become people who were running a building rather yeah. than people who were making plays. That was a really good decision, I think. Then you started to say, well, if we're not doing plays every spring, summer, then why don't we use that flexibility, that, that we're a small ship that can turn the water very quickly to do something that other people can't do? And then an idea came from, I mean, it's so funny, I, I remember in the late 70s, early 80s, thinking I'd love to, I wanted to leave Druid to found a company that would only do Sing. It never occurred to me that Druid could do that <laughs> until actually about the mid-90s. So at that point, we we said, well, um, this year we are going to spend the whole year doing the entire repertoire yeah. of Sing. And we were able to do that because we didn't have anything else uh, locking us into place. We didn't have to perform X, Y dates. Um, obviously, the Arts Council had to prove, but they did and so on. So the, the, it allowed us to perform in... To, it allowed us to use a form, long-form yeah. theatre, um, that allowed us to do things that we couldn't otherwise have done. What did you find through the process of going through it? Did you find that it opened up new insights into the work? It, seeing them kind of uh, in relation to each other and juxtaposed against each other, did that open up new things or were the surprises unexpected gems? I think not. I think the re yes, the, the, it did. And but I think the real benefit of it uh, was reflecting on uh, creating an ensemble, yeah, and how people become. Uh, you know, I start to assume a set of skills and talents and, and, and start speaking a language and having a dialogue that is otherwise just simply not available to you when you come in on week one and leave again two months later. And so Druid Singh was really the, the, the foundation of the current um, it, it allowed me to reflect at the time about if you were to ever to write the history of Druid, it could be written in the, in the various ensembles. Right. That we didn't call them that at the time, yeah. but in fact, 
the first ensemble of the sort of founder post-founding members that lasted probably into the late 80s when people began to be in demand elsewhere then the ensemble that collected around the Mark McDonough plays in the late 90s um, and then this current ensemble which has been in existence really embryonic existence since Druid Singh Wow um, Were there terrifying moments through taking on a task as big as that as well? Yeah, yeah really really terrifying really. And, and like, I mean are there points where because it is as big as it is as an yeah. operation like that are there points where you're wondering if you can pull it off? Oh yeah Really? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Certainly with the first one, but with all of them, it doesn't get any. Knowing you've done it before doesn't make it any make it any more believable that you're going to do it again. Yeah. But certainly with Druid saying, I mean, where are we actually going to get through this from two o'clock on day yeah. one of the first preview to eleven o'clock on that day? Were we actually not going to just break down in yeah. front of the audience? That that was. That was extraordinary. Is there something in, apart from the massive work and effort coming from the entire creative team that build mm. the show, is there something in the investment from the audience that says, I'm willing to go on of this journey with is. you? That, that that level of buy-in, does that shape the audience's it, experience too? It, it, it absolutely do. You know, so people were coming up saying, you know, oh my God, the idea of sitting in the theatre for <laughs> nine hours. But then they'd come out and say, God, that was really worth it. Yeah. And then people started making friends because they'd meet them on the meal breaks yes. and, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of that going on. Of course it is. It's not just your investment. It's the investment of the audience as well. Yeah, it always fascinates me in terms of how you bring an audience to meet the work, I yeah. guess, and, yeah. and, and how you shape the experience for them. But if it's just buying a ticket at box office and walking in and sitting down at the plush red uh, velvet seat and whatever else. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. I couldn't, you know, have, I haven't put it like that before, but that's, that's um, a very good way of putting it. I want to talk a little bit then about, I mean, you mentioned the McDonough plays. I want to talk about the success of that work mm-hmm. and specifically the significance of the Tony win. At the time, were you aware or did you care about kind of the historic significance of first female director to win a Tony? Or are you just too caught up in the work and going, this is great for the show, we keep it going? Uh, No, I was very much caught up in the work. Um, I mean, Beauty Queen was a success out of the traps, but there was a couple of things that helped it become the international success that it was. First of all, he had done a co-production deal with the uh, Royal Court. I was associate director there for a few years with Stephen Daldry. Um, And so we did a co-pro, which meant that the Beauty Queen opened in in Galway, in the Town Hall Theatre in Galway, and then uh, transferred straight away to the Royal Court, the theatre upstairs in the Royal Court. So that means usually when... Irish plays were a success and would go on to London or elsewhere. There'd be a set down and then the production would have to be revived with possibly oh, yes. new actors and so on. So that was kind of, suddenly it was an international success. Um, then it took, I think it took about two years to get it to America because all the American producers uh, wanted the show but not the cast. Okay. And we held out and eventually... Um, had the full original cast. How diff- I mean, just even logistically in terms of equity and all that jumping through hoops, how, was, how tricky is it to maintain a cast like that? It was really tricky. And there was one, one advantage, I mean, equity is the big thing. There was one advantage, one of the company, Brain had a green oh, yes. card. So we were only looking for three. 
and the original arrangement was that we would have two, uh, Marie and Anna, and then we would go out and cast the third. So we went. To, I went through endless auditions, 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 and eventually said, now I've auditioned 500 people, I can't find an actor to suitably play it, equity, you're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to bring Tom into it, and they accepted that. Right. So we had the, the full original company wow, going to fantastic. Um, and then uh, it transferred to Broadway and then suddenly the noise about awards and all of that kind of thing and I I knew about them because really I kind of grew up in American theatre but I found it when people said how would it feel for you to be the first woman to win a Tony Award I didn't believe people were I didn't believe that could be true because I was very influenced by a lot of very famous women in in the American theatre. It was women like Zelda Chandler and so on who actually founded the regional theatre movement right. in, in in America. And uh, it was only then when I realised that the Tonys really are only awards for Broadway. Yeah. And there are awards that really are termed by money because the first thing to get on Broadway there has to be somebody there called a producer who has a lot of investors. Yeah. And uh, it was only then. So yeah, it was it was fabulous. Uh, it was fantastic that we won. The only re- one we didn't won was the one where Brian and Tom were up against each other. Right. And uh, yeah, it was an incredible night. Um, and for all of us, it meant a lot. But I think at this stage, certainly for myself, we were too long in the tooth for it to make that much of a difference. Okay. You know, had we been. You know, had I been 10 years younger, had I been in my late 20s, early 30s, perhaps I would have uh, moved to uh, uh, New York, um, uh, you know, because as always, lots of offers came in and so on. But I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't, drew it it on where I was and my life as an Irish person meant meant too much to And clearly, the model that existed at Druid at the time meant that you could make, you know, world-class work, the kind of work that you wanted to be making. So, yeah. if if that if that element of the creative impulse is satisfied, then if it's if you have satisfaction yeah. there, then well, know, we, if they broke, we had, you know, I mean, and I became extremely aware of it when I went to the Abbey. Hmm. Um, I suddenly saw. A lot of things that I would have thought of negative about the Druid experience, the lack of money and the lack of organisation, the lack of uh, resources. Um, I suddenly realised that, you know, while all of those were great, uh, independence of thought and purpose was one of the greatest values of all. And um, I think that's always been the the bargain, if you like. Yeah. Your, how was your time at the Abbey? I mean, it's it's such a monumental institution, kind of, and yeah. even in, in people's psyches, I think. Um, yeah. And I don't just mean within the theatre community. I think, you know, as a nation, we have this sense of ownership of that building uh, and the work that goes on there. Uh, what was it like for you? I mean, what was the initial draw to go and uh, to go and run it? And then what was it like while you were there? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, there was, first of all, an increasing... The, the, the original founding group in Druid were beginning to spread its wings. And um, I was becoming all too aware that I couldn't spend a lifetime at Druid because that wouldn't be good for me and that wouldn't be good for Druid. And I had been asked before, would I become artistic director at the Abbey? I had said no. And I was asked again, and I said yes. 
and it was as simple as that. I left Druid permanently. Uh, I became artistic director of the Abbey for three uh, very tumultuous years, and then I um, left after three years. And um, what was I left to do but become a freelance director and bought a house here in Dublin, settled here, and then about nine months or a year later, um, the board of Druid, then board of Druid, came back to me and said they couldn't replace uh, Melissa Stafford, who had succeeded me. Would I come back and do a short consultancy artistic directorship? I said yes, thinking this is a really bad idea, and I th- and they asked me, thinking this is a really bad idea, and. Suddenly, you know, about two years later, I remember saying to the board, maybe it's time to take the consultant out of the title. So that's the way it happened. But I've always said, you know, uh, a lot of people say I shouldn't be there now, perhaps might say that, that, you know, but there's no way I would be there now had I been continuous. It was the break that allowed me to go back. And is that about... Just a chance to, you know, to regroup, to refresh, to have a different perspective on things, or just is it about not getting stuck in a rut? Why do you feel it was as beneficial as it was? It was well when I when I left, I didn't know who was more dependent on who. Was I more dependent on Druid, or was Druid more dependent on me? And there was a, a mutual insecurity there uh, that I think was mm, would not have led to the best of work. So going to the Abbey, um, um, you know, as many challenges as I faced, it was good to feel I could exist. Mm. I mean, I broke all ties with Druid. I went to see the shows, obviously, sure. but I didn't sit on board. I did nothing like that. So, so that, that was good. Um, plus other independent work I'd done at the time, and I had directed at the Abbey as a freelancer before I became artistic director. Um, so, yeah, and... Yeah, when I came back, um, I think probably I was a bit of pain in the neck to to a lot of people there because I came back and I said, you know, uh, I'm not interested in the old days. You know, um, I would have had a kind of self-consciousness about I'm back here because not because I founded it mm. or was part of the founding. I'm back here because I was asked back. You know right. what I mean? So I was a director in the present tense, not the past. Okay. And I think I was kind of probably overly conscious about uh, not to get let myself or the company become mythologized. Yeah, okay. Um, we've talked a bit about how you feel the ensembles have shaped stuff. We've also talked about how uh, how passionate you are about writing. What for you is the magic, or when are you happiest? Are you happiest in the rehearsal room, up on the floor, working with actors? Is it when you get into a tech and start to put the elements together? It's is definitely it not a tech. <laughs> where, where is the magic for you? Well, you know, and the magic is, the magic is in reading a new play or reading a play and having the thought of what that this actor could be wonderful and this and that actor could be wonderful and all that sort of magic. And then, you know, uh, having the play and then passing it on to colleagues, whether it's Francis O'Connor or any members of the ensemble, and having them respond, oh, and and that that magic when you're when you're putting all the ingredients together, you put you like when you're cooking and you put all the ingredients out and you start to write, and then when you go into the rehearsal room, obviously, 
even though it's you know you're you're under the clock and it's terrifying and so on and then the tech is hell on wheels <laughs> and you know it's worse from that <laughs> um, are you comfortable around opening nights I know some directors no. love it and some hate it some no. can't even be in the building no. How, what, what's the sensation for you around opening and putting it out in front of the audience well I I, I used to go to first nights always because that's what you did and then gradually in the early 80s I thought to myself why am I going to the first night I'm hardly going to go in and give the actors notes or if I did I'd be you'd be run out of the place <laughs> Um, so why am I going? And that's yeah. it's. I'm just there watching everything that goes wrong. So the first opening night I stayed out of, and to this day I regret it, was uh, Bali and Gora, oh, wow. and uh, uh, Siobhan's sort of cloud-piercing debut as Mama, and I, I missed it. But wow. I've stayed away ever since. It's now become kind of, I don't. I just don't go to first night. I feel I've I'll hex it now if I do. Okay. And do you like to then come back and check in with the production as it goes? No, I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah probably not enough. More, I should do more than I do, but I do come back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those moments in the rehearsal room where you see those first sparks of magic, whether it's uh, you know chemistry between two actors that you mm. have cast opposite each other for the first time, or you know, seeing the new Tom Murphy come to life yeah. in front of you. How special are those moments? And, and, and are they made more special by the fact that they are kind of almost private before we take it to the public. Yeah, I mean, they are very special. The only thing I say about it is it's just like it's, you don't think like that when you're in the rehearsal room, or I don't. Mm. You think, uh, my God, that run was not quite as much of a car crash as I thought it might be, or I think that piece may be working, or God, I think he's possibly going to give a really good performance here. You know, you're always, you're always like, you just kind of keep your head above water. You're yeah. always one step away from, in my mind, because I, I'm, I've personality like that. You're one way uh, step away from catastrophe all the time, right. and uh, so you don't you don't breathe easily when you're in the rehearsal room, mm-hmm. and then you go in front of the audience, and there is there there is some sort of release there because the audience teaches you so much. I mean. And it's so ridiculous that you're there in the rehearsal room for however long trying to work something out, and then you go in front of the audience suddenly, total clarity. Yes. You know, um, it is fantastic how they can reveal yeah. the show to you very, very quickly, and then yeah. it's a sense you do get that sense kind of you know week three, week four going. This just needs an audience. Yes, uh, yes, and not absolutely. even just strictly for comedies or whatever you're where you're worried about no. timing, but there are in order to be able to let you see it again. Mm. I mean, one of the things I say to actors. Uh, uh, a lot is uh, you know when we're doing a first reading of something whether it's the first day of rehearsal or increasingly now with the ensemble we do we can do readings three and six months beforehand yeah. I said just always remember this first this first reading because there are things that will happen in this first encounter that will never happen again mm. is that ju- that's just the freshness of coming to it without that's right. prejudice Pre- or, or preconceptions yeah. or yeah um what do you get most excited by now, uh, as you as you look at kind of projects that might be coming up? What what gets you, what gets you going the most? I mean, because to be fair, you've had a significant amount of global success. So mm. I mean, at this stage, does it need to be 
uh, we'll have a big US transfer and a Broadway run at this stage to get you excited or can you or do you still get excited about even you know smaller stuff work and development and stuff that might be happening I, ab- I absolutely do you know I mean um, we, we took a huge big risk on for instance um, Druid Shakespeare where um, about I don't know six months out uh, from the first day of rehearsals um, we suddenly this kind of bolt of lightning said we should not be doing this in the town hall theatre we should be doing it in the MLT now that absolutely made no sense on any level whatsoever and with the cooperation of a lot of of everybody for whom it was incredibly stupid thing to do including the crews including mm, the suits the people who have to make the budgets and make that work including um uh, Fergal McGrath, who thought he had a secure booking in the town hall, <laughs> to suddenly be told. I mean, and it, it was, for whatever set of reasons I still can't analyse, it was the right decision. So, um, and it was wonderful being back in, it was wonderful making the work in the MLT. Um, and it kind of rebalanced the, the company. So, you know, and then sort of the lads wanted to go Gado and me saying, you know, I can see why ye want to do it, but I don't know if the world needs another production of Waiting for Gado, particularly, you know, after the Gates 20 year yeah. old production. It was kind of legendary. And, um, but we, I said, let's do it and let's do it for a very short run in the MLT. All we have to do is get a thousand people to see it. And they did and suddenly more people want to see it. so you can you can take risk and all of that kind of thing so as long as as long as you continue to be excited about it anything i've ever done for reasons that aren't true in here somewhere even if it's for reasons that i don't fully understand anything i've done like that has inevitably not worked out uh, do you feel now that you can that you can trust your gut like that even on an idea like that which as you said makes no sense to pull it from the yeah. town hall back across is it just that you've You've been through the fire as many times as you have that you can kind of trust your gut on it now. Um, I think I I think no. I mean, you 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 always think this is the one where my gut says this and my gut is going to be terribly wrong. Um, so you always think that day is going to come and that day has come yeah. sometimes. Um, I think what you have to do is you have to have an instinct that's the right thing to do, but your gut then has to be informed. Yeah. I mean, you can't just say, oh, to hell with it, this is going to work, because you have to, well, you have to have, I'm sorry, I'm going to use a terrible word, you have to have a backstop. Okay. You have to have a plan B and a plan C and yeah. a plan D, if you like. Well, you're hoping you'll never get to plan D because you're dead if you do, but you definitely have to have a plan B. Right. Um, as you look ahead then, for you, having achieved as much as you had in, in normal walks of life, if you do the guts of 40 years somewhere, yeah. you get to, you know, put your yeah. feet up and relax for a while. Yeah. Theatre people don't tend to do that. I no. presume you have no intention of slowing down anytime soon. I don't. I mean, I don't have uh, any intentions of, I mean, <laughs> I probably am slowing down, uh, but um, I don't have any intention of retiring anytime soon. However, there will come a time when I will certainly uh, have to retire from Druid yeah. and and uh, I'll have to just you know get out of the space and and uh, ensure the future of the company. Have you a vision for what 
the druid of 30, 40, 50 years from now looks no. like? No, it's not for me to have. Okay. Um, it's for somebody else to have. Okay. And as long as they have a strong, strong enough vision, um, I, th- I think it will be still there. If I were to try and create that vision from here, the company would, would not survive. Well, either way, I think we have a very bright future ahead of it. Uh, you will certainly be leaving it in very good shape. Gary Hines, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Andrew. Pleasure to do it. So there you have it, the great Gary Hines. Such an honour and a privilege to have her on the podcast and have her be part of this entire project. Just an incredible artist who has created so much great work over the years and really great to get her insight into the process and, and you know, kind of what makes the work tick. I've, one of my favourite conversations of the series, I have to say, a real, real pleasure. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings-on around the country at the Abbey Theatre. Gary's production of Richard III continues and Rathmines Road. They also have Double Cross coming up. At the Gate Theatre, it is the completely sold-out Hamlet, starring my pal Ruth Neg- at the Gaiety Theatre, John B. Keane's The Matchmaker, directed by Michael Scott, is coming up soon. At the Board Gosh, it's Shrek the Musical. At the Lear, they're continuing with that production of Serious Money. It's the first show from the uh, the current graduating class, if you will. Serious Money, a play very close to my heart. We did it, I think, nine years ago now, when Aoife Spillane-Hinks was uh, coming out of the Seeds programme at Rough Magic. It was the show she, she chose to do, and we had an absolute ball on that. Um, at Theatre Upstairs, Cassowary is coming up soon from Kevin C. Olihan, who was one of my favourite actors knocking around town at the new theatre they have extremities and at smock alley they have dracula and also playground from our friends at glass mask which is their series of rehearsed readings um, at the civic theatre in tala they have the nightingale and the rose and then also the mental and at pavilion it's that touring production of holy mary directed by the great Aoife spillan hinks uh, at Driacht, they have myra's story and also that production of holy mary on the road at the viking theatre they have and thank you and that'll be followed by brothers of the brush at the Dol- it's Helen Norton and former guest and friend of the show Jonathan White in their all-conquering production of To Helen Handbag and my understanding is that may be the only Irish dates for this year so if you haven't seen it yet shame on you but also get out there to the Dolman and see it it is a cracking show uh, at Beauty's Cafe Theatre they have Ringer by Stuart Roach again also directed by Aoife Spillane Hinks uh, she's a busy woman at the moment and then at the Project Arts Centre, they have Recovery and The Bystander. Heading south to the Everyman Cork, they have Portrait of the Artist from Rough Magic. Uh, at Town Hall in Galway, they also have that production of Portrait. At the Lime Tree in Limerick, that production of Holy Mary is coming there soon, and that'll be followed by Tan. And up north at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast, it is Double Cross and Dear Arabella. So look, that is us. That is episode 50 in the books. Only two weeks to go, my friends. This is all wrapping up soon. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 